0: rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-el grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Needmeyer. And, uh, before we get into the comic reviews this month, or this week, sorry, um, I would like to make a little bit of announcement. Um, we don't really have any emails to go over this time, but I would like to put an offer out there for all the listeners. What I would like to do is, uh, this is, and I can, I feel like I can do this because this is a show. Basically, it's just me, so I can, open it up to this kind of thing uh, without having any difficulties with people. But I would like to offer a chance for people to, if they want to, to come on the show. If you've got an issue that we'll that I will be covering that you might have an extreme fondness for, it might be your favorite, might be the first one you ever read or something like that, um, and you would like to come on the show and actually talk about it, And maybe even review it if you prefer. uh, Please let me know. Just email me, and uh, we'll see if we can uh, get something scheduled so we can both be on the show and talk about that uh, that comic. This is I'm not saying anyone has to be would be. This is not for a permanent guest host spot. But um, if anyone would like to co-host at any time, it doesn't have to necessarily be your favorite. If you just want to jump on the show see what podcasting is like if you want to come on the show and just talk some about some Bronze Age Superman stuff uh, feel free just let me know and uh, we will set something up also I do have a little bit of an announcement um, I found out uh, by looking at the statistics for my downloads that apparently I've gone well over a thousand downloads Um In my first six episodes, so I would like to thank everyone for the downloads. Uh, Most of them come from iTunes, so obviously I know which way everyone's getting them. But I'm glad that's working. Um, uh, The Christmas episode, my uh, episode five, was actually the most downloaded so far of all the episodes I've done, which kind of surprised me because I was sitting here afraid that since it wasn't specifically covering just Superman, that no one was going to like it. I was just I did it because I wanted to and I wanted to do something to celebrate you know the Christmas holiday and I didn't know I figured people would be like oh we can skip this one because it's not you know the next episode of you know regular issues to be covered and yet this one has um almost a hundred more downloads than any previous episode uh, with number one with episode one being the second most downloaded episode and that's one that's been going since November so <clears throat> I would just like to say thank you. Uh, 272 at downloads for one episode, and it's only been a few weeks. That just blows me away. So thank you everyone for downloading and for downloading the other episodes as well. Um, there was definitely a jump uh, once we hit January of '71 and we brought Superman into it. So. Um, I do want to thank everyone for downloading and for listening, and um, please make sure that you do check out the other shows that are on the Superman Podcast Network. Uh, There's a lot of great shows. Um, I just want to make sure everyone goes there. It's uh, www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, and just about every day, something's being posted there, so please make sure you check that out. And, uh, I guess now we'll just move on. A first issue this month, well, this month's worth of comics is Superman number 235. Uh, it was, it has a cover date of March 1971, as do all of the other issues that I'm covering today. Superman came out on January 14th, 1971. It's, once again, has a really cool Neil Adams cover. It's almost broken up like a comic book page, actually, so it's kind of cool. Another one of those covers, though, that Kind of, how do I want to say it? it kind of lies about what's on the inside. Uh, asking if there is a as, if there is a villain who is swifter, smarter, and stronger than Superman. Over the course of the issue, two out of the three happen, but I wouldn't say smarter. But we'll get into that in a little bit. This issue uh, is called "The Sinister Scream of the Devil's Harp." It was written by Denny O'Neill with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor was Julie Schwartz, and even though, and again, even though it still doesn't say it yet because we still got several years before they finally officially add it, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Before I get into it, I do want to mention that this issue kind of has somewhat of a special regard for me—not uh, so much because of the story, uh, but because uh, this one is signed. Uh, one of the Baltimore Comic Cons that I went to, a different one than the one where I met Julie Schwartz the first time. I believe, I, had, I believe this one was first. This one I actually bought at the same comic convention where Murphy Anderson was actually there to sign and stuff. And um, I handed him the issue, and he looked at it, and he said, I didn't draw this cover. Want me to sign the inside? So I said, sure. So instead of a black magic marker, or a permanent marker, as they all seem to use, he pulled out a pen, opened up, and at the bottom of the first page, page it says, To Charlie, signed Murphy Anderson. So that's kind of cool for me. But anyway, um, what's happening in this issue is we start off at a at a concert in the wealthy suburbs of Metropolis, at the Concert Bowl, uh, premiere performance of a splendid new talent named Ferlin Nixley, N Y X L Y. It's one of those comic book names that's hard to say, like Kilgore, where they use the percent sign instead of the O. I don't, uh, it's weird. But anyway, um, so Lois and Clark are at the performance although Lois says she's only there because she didn't already have a date with Superman that night, and so she doesn't mind going out with Clark, which seems kind of snotty, but anyway, we see that the Prince Umbler of a a country we don't actually get told about is here. Basically, he comes from the Middle East. So as they're sitting down, Clark looks up to notice that there is a helicopter flying a little too low. So using his X-ray vision, he notices that it's Full of assassins and that they've got a blockbuster on their hands so clark excuses himself to get some orange drink and rushes off changes to superman and flies up just as those bomb uh just as the assassins drop the bomb uh superman gets of course under it and harmlessly explodes upon his chest and he grabs the bottom of the helicopter and starts flying it to the ground while they start shooting at him with a machine gun and of course it bounces off his back he lands it uh he and while he's taking care of business quote unquote by bending up their guns and taking their stuff, apparently he's also explaining that he's Superman that they should know better uh Apparently, these guys don't know about Superman, even though he's known all over the earth and beyond. but anyway, so he arrests the gentleman and hands him over to an officer. but by this point, a crowd has gathered from the inside the bowl they have left to see what the commotion was about and are there to see Superman Superman. Notices Lois. He can't stop to chat with her right now, or she so she doesn't notice the Clark is still missing. But she gives her a friendly wave and fly, Or he gives her a friendly wave and flies off. Uh, just a little bit later, as everyone gets back inside to take their seats, Clark shows up again uh, with their drinks and apologizes because he was caught in the mob. And Lois says that it's okay. Um, she can't really hear him anyway, because after watching Superman in action, everyone has the personality of a suit of clothes hanging in an empty closet. So, poor Clark. Anyway, uh, Nix Lee takes the stage and begins his piano playing. Um, apparently it sounds really good. However, uh, he's noticing that everyone out in the audience is still talking about Superman. And he goes into this little rant in his mind about the fact that uh, he's been dreaming of this performance for years and everyone's here, even though everyone's there to see him, he's a loser and his one shot at success apparently has been ruined at least until he found a harp apparently he used to work as the curator at metropolis music museum and uh, going over some of the stuff he was putting on display he found this harp with a devil uh... demon looking face carved in the front he started playing the harp and it played some chilling music and while he played it he wished that he could play a piano so While he's doing that, he's checking out a piano that's also going to be put on display. Sits down and starts to play and plays beautifully. And then, of course, the flashback ends and we're back at the concert. And a gentleman named Timos Atchins, I'm not sure how to say his name, but anyway, he uh, stands up and says, Silence, you Philistines. Can't you realize you're hearing art? And tells him that this guy, Nixley, is a great artist and is as splendid as he used to be. And Clark explains to Lois that he was considered to be the world's best pianist until about six months ago when his talent just disappeared from him. Clue number one. Uh, meanwhile, next day at GBS, Morgan Edge is talking to Superman about the fact that the wave looks more like grandstanding, even though uh, Clark knows the actual reason why he was waving, and tells him that uh, he's got a editorial that he has written that he wants to put on the air and since Clark is becoming popular with the viewers he will be the one to read it on this morning's telecast uh Clark feels like maybe he should not because it's pretty heavy but he says he could do it he should do it anyway if he likes his job so he goes out onto the onto the stage and for the first time in a well yeah for the first time we see superman behind the anchor desk and he begins to uh, give his, the editorial but suddenly someone I guess the actual anchor breaks in with a news bulletin that won't wait and mentions that there's an unidentified object near the USS Blake which is taking nerve canisters out to sea so Superman so Clark changes to Superman flies out there at super speed and notices and with his telescopic vision notices that the UFO is actually the sand creature from the last two issues um, he goes to check up uh, to go after him and flies off. Its, it flies after him at super speed. Unfortunately, uh, he can't f- attain his top speed. And every time, as every time he gets faster, the sand creature gets faster. Uh, meanwhile, back in Metropolis, Nixley is back at the museum, and he picks up the, the devil's harp. And he wishes that he could fly. And uh, suddenly, he lifts off into the air. At that same moment, though, both Superman and the sand creature plummet into the ocean below. Uh, Superman can still swim he runs around at super speed realizes he still has just about all of his powers his strength is still undiminished uh, and they and he and the same creature both apparently come to the same decision um, conclusion at the same time it's just their fi- uh, flying power has been taken from them so using a flat one of the flashes tricks they run across the water at super speed and um, Meanwhile, for some reason at the museum, Nixley decides to put on a pan costume, not Peter Pan, but, uh, the mythological demigod who, uh, is also the ugliest of the gods. He actually puts on the horns and this weird looking ugly costume. And ironically, this guy who has a bit of a gut is also pretty well built in the arms and stuff, so, you know, whatever. Um, he jumps off, he's gonna, he steps up to the window, scared because he's not sure he'll actually fly this time but he has with the harp in hand he takes off and ends up flying and does all kinds of cool tricks up in the air and uh uh, as he flies over a beach he sees women that wouldn't give him two glances because of course he's ugly ferlin nixley um he also realizes he's poor as a church mouse even though he must have been given a lot of money for that concert but anyway flies over and sees uh that there are there's an armored car loading up some money in money bags and flies down to grab a couple real quick uh, one of the guards grabs a shotgun and takes a shot at him and he is pelted in the back actually just near his butt something about Kurt Swan liking to hit people in that part of the product but anyway uh, they shot him and he's hurt and he's falling to the ground so using the harp he says please make me invulnerable and he crashes without any problems Coming As he comes up from the crater, uh, he calmly walks back and picks up the two money bags he had dropped when he got shot. As the guards continue to shoot him with their pistols, of course the bullets bounce off, and he just flies away. Meanwhile, back at the GBS file room, Clark, uh, Superman is switching back to Clark and realizes that the best place for him to get any news is the newsroom. And as he goes back, he's met by a coffee boy uh, delivering some coffee. And unfortunately, the coffee boy trips and splashes hot coffee onto Clark. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem, but for some reason, his hand got burned pretty bad, too. I mean, it's even colored more pink than the rest of his body. Which, of course, means that we, the reader, understand that Nixley's sudden invulnerability was taken from Superman and, more likely, the sand creature. And Clark just happens to look out a window to see the sand creature hiding down below in an alley. Meanwhile, as he's standing there kind of moping about it, Edge uh, shows up and calls Clark and tells him to get to the uh, Studio B as soon as possible. And as he does, he sees that Nixley is there in his pan costume, and he's requesting to be on the air. And on the air, recorded on WGBS and all its stations, uh, Nixley directs a message to Superman, challenging him to a death duel tonight at Metropolis Stadium. And then after it's over, he he bids everyone good afternoon and leaves. Clark walks down the hall, realizes that he's lost his flight and invulnerability, puts two and two together and realizes that Nixley must have taken him somehow. Unless he can figure out how, he doesn't see a chance to beat him. And the only way he can see to learn how, to, how he took his powers is to do the one thing that he probably shouldn't be doing because it's an obvious trap, but he changes to Superman and races off to the stadium. As he arrives... The stadium parking lot is already full and people are still arriving uh, he walks into the stadium and confronts quote-unquote pan and superman runs up at super speed and nixley uses that time to play the harp and say give me speed and suddenly superman slows down to a snail's pace while nixley runs around at super speed just as superman's about to give him a good punch to the chin nixley plays the harp and requests for super strength and superman almost breaks his knuckles by the time he punches nixley nixley drops the harp and tries to wrestle with superman superman's trying in vain to grab the harp but can't as nixley throws him over into uh, a set of lockers in the stadium dugout and just as he's about to kill superman the sand creature arrives Picks up the harp and smashes it, and there's a flash of silent, searing brightness. And Pan or Nixley is knocked out. The harp is destroyed, and Superman and the Sand Creature get their powers back. Superman asks him several questions, trying to find out who he is, what he wants. But the sand creature merely walks away, and for some reason, Superman lets it. Next issue, we take a little bit of a hiatus from this story to feature a different kind of Superman adventure called Planet of the Angels. And that's it for this issue. A few notes I have. First of all, I should point out that this story has only been reprinted once uh, in the Kryptonite Evermore hardcover. And um, I did notice a few things on page one. Like I said, uh, the way Lois was acting... Uh, seems to have reverted her back to her, the way she used to treat Clark back in the Golden Age. And the only reason I'm really picking up on that is because I've just been listening to uh, The Golden Age of Superman by John M. Wilson and also uh, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman by Michael Bradley. And uh, both of those cover The Golden Age of Superman. And, of course, both of them recently covered Action Number 1, which had her treating Clark pretty much like this on page two um, I wonder though even though she she says basically that she would be bored she doesn't mind going with Clark to this show because um, you know she's not already going on a date with Superman which is kinda stuck up if you ask me but um, she also starts acting like she's gonna be bored and the thing I have to wonder is why would she even bother going if she's gonna be bored also at the bottom of page 2 on the final panel uh, Swan uses a little trick that gets used later on in some of the Superman and Supergirl movies and also on the Superboy TV show. Basically, um, the only one that really pops in my head is, uh, on Supergirl. One of the scenes where she sees, I think it's when she's about to fight the lightning storm, the sentient lightning, lightning storm, the magic lightning storm, I guess it is. She flies out the window. She's running to the window in her Linda Lee costume or outfit. And as she flies through the window, even though we don't see her change, uh, like just with that one pane of glass one side she enters in her school outfit and the other side she uh, exits wearing the supergirl costume that's kind of what they do here they use a pillar and one minute we see Clark running past and the next side of course superman takes off so i thought that was pretty cool uh page 3 he uh superman does mention it's a blockbuster bomb and it's a really big bomb but when he put bu- hits his chest. It's like a really small explosion. Doesn't even seem to cause any problems for the helicopter, which considering the closeness of it, you would think the, you know, the shock of the explosion would have thrown it off course a little. Uh, Page four, Superman is known all over the Earth and beyond, so apparently these guys don't know about him, though. They like to do this sometimes. They do it with Batman uh, during this era too, where it's like, if you're not from Gotham or you're not from Metropolis, you don't know who Superman is for some reason even though Superman could go to the planet, whatever, and they know about him. So anyway, and on page five, uh, using just a couple of panels, uh, O'Neill is, fit every, is able to tell us what kind of a guy Nixley is. Basically, he sees himself as a loser and nothing is ever good enough, and he will do whatever he has to, even though it's not really a moral stance, to get what he believes he deserves. In this instance, uh, he wants fame and power, And during the course of the story, of course, he gets his fame uh, by stealing the piano abilities. And then, of course, he gets his power by stealing all of Superman's powers. Although, by the end, I'm wondering why he doesn't blow up the same way the Parasite does when he was originally... Uh, introduced and tried to take all Superman's powers. Then again, this apparently is a magic harp, so maybe that has something to do with it. And um, by page 7, every time you see someone new into the story, Clark has to explain to Lois who it is, and that just doesn't seem right for a reporter as highly touted as Lois is. Uh, Page 10. It makes me wonder how much of a coincidence it was that apparently only Superman and the sand creature lost their flying power when Nixley asked for ability to fly, but maybe it's just because of the distance because there weren't really any other... I mean, Nixley was a metropolis, and it was... Excuse me, But Superman and the Sand Creature were over the Atlantic, so I don't know. Just makes you wonder if any of the other flying characters in the DCU lost their powers. Did Hawkman suddenly stop flying? Or Green Lantern? But anyway, I do like the fact, though, that the Sand Creature would lose his powers, too, since basically the powers he has are Superman's, just taken from him. So it does make sense that they both lose their powers. I liked how they did play with that. I don't understand why Nixley puts on a costume. For one, it looks stupid. Uh, And for two, it makes really no sense why he couldn't just use his suit. And he's not covering his face, so anyone would recognize him anyway. And if they don't recognize him, since he's quote-unquote a loser, it doesn't change anything. On page 12, though, when he's first flying around, I thought it was kind of funny uh, a couple of people on the street actually look up and do the whole look up at the sky thing, uh, bit, even though this isn't Superman. So I so thought that was pretty cool. Um, what also gets me is page 14, he gets shot. And I would think at this point, the last thing you're going to think about is having enough time, in human time, remember, he doesn't have super speed, just the flight. Um, how he he would have the uh, the wits about him to play the harp and ask for invulnerability real quick. Plus, since he's invulnerable now, wouldn't that mean that the bullets and stuff are permanently stuck in his body? like At least until the harp um, is destroyed. In which case, you would think that he would be in all kinds of prob- trouble and pain, even though they don't mention that. So I don't know about that. Anyway, um, page 16. Now, you know, if this was... If this story was done today and Clark was actually a real person, he would more than likely have sued the pants off that coffee guy and the company he works for before he even got to the end of the hall. But this time, the guy just says, hey, I'm sorry about that. Looks like you got a really mean burn. We'll see you later. Bye. Um, page 17, 18, and 19 is what this note, next note covers. And it's kind of funny how they do this. It's another one of those um, of O'Neill's little issues with time pacing. And he's in the office in the afternoon making his broadcast on TV. He even says good afternoon when he leaves. Clark walks down the hall afterwards, changes to Superman, and takes off. The next page, he's running at the stadium. Now, he still has a super speed, and they don't mention that there's a big time change or difference. So apparently, it just looks like he just takes off and runs. In the time it takes from the super speed, from the GBS building to the Metropolis Stadium, everyone in Metropolis has apparently had time to drive there, park, and get in the stadium, or are still getting there. And suddenly it's nighttime. and pan's already there, and Superman shows up. It's it's like wow, that's pretty quick for everybody to get there. But anyway, um, also I just realized something that I didn't even note about: Superman was following the sand creature, but they don't mention how he got how the sand creature lost him. They were following. We switch over to Nixley's story. We come back. and Clark's just at GPS, ch- change it back into his civilian clothes. So I don't know how that works, but. We'll just go with that. Um, basically, on page twenty-one, in the fight with Nixley, getting thrown, somersaulted, and thrown over into those lockers, Superman just gets owned here. I would, uh, I would think that he'd be a little bit better, but again, again, he's basically going up against himself and without his powers. And I know he's had to have done this before. I'm pretty sure that there had to be at least one Silver Age adventure where he had to do that, but he just got owned here. Um, and on page 22, the final page of the story, he just lets the sand creature walk away in the middle of a, of a busy stadium. I don't think that would really happen most of the time. However, like I mentioned, if Nixley is now hurting because of the fact that his invulnerability is gone, he may have needed to take him to a hospital, but they failed to mention that in the story, so I don't know. Overall, though, um, other than the pacing, this was a really good story, and I really liked the art, um, and I highly recommend it. Um, Again, like I said, it was—it's only been reprinted in the Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover, which, as expensive as the book is, it's a lot more affordable than trying to find this book um, in good condition. Although you might be able to find it, maybe a little cheaper online, like on eBay. But trying to find it in this good, in really good condition, in a comic book store, or anything, you're probably going to be spending double digits on the price. So just a warning, everybody. Uh, next up, we're going to do World's Finest number 201 which features Superman and the Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Uh, again, that's another $0.15 cent cover price, March 71. This issue was released on January 26, 1971. And even though the information I have shows that this is a Neil Adams cover, uh, this also somewhat looks like it might have been laid out by Carmine Infantino, just based on the posing of the characters. It looks something like, some, well, it looks reminds me a lot of the issue a couple issues back where we have the flash superman race and the way they're posed there which carmine infantino did draw so it looks like maybe o'neill inked it over infantino's pencils maybe but i'm not sure uh the title of this story is called a prize of peril the writer is denny o'neill the art is by dick dylan and joe gaella and the editor on this is also julie schwartz so uh this issue starts and it has a little a line at the beginning to say that um, this is the conflict of the century, and until now, authorities had asked uh, DC Comics uh, that the full story of of what happens here apparently happened during the second week of August 1970 to be repressed for reasons of international security. However, World's Finest Comics has at last gotten permission to tell the tale of the terrible combat between two of the world's mightiest champions, Superman and Green Lantern so I kinda like how they play that a little bit um, making it sound like you know this really happened anyway our story starts in space uh, with Green Lantern flying around mentioning that he's trying to get away from the turmoil of Earth's people even though he's one of them and uh, trying to get over the population overpopulation and pollution and threat of war so he can relax a little bit uh, only to find that the Earth is about to be bombarded by a meteor shower unfortunately some of them are so large that they're not going to Uh, break up when they hit the atmosphere, and all of them are heading towards North America. And even though his ring is at about half strength, which isn't explained here, but apparently would have been explained had we been following Green Lantern's magazine, So, and I don't have any of those, so I couldn't find out why. But if you want to find out, right around this time period, um, apparently something happened to Green Lantern's ring. Um, anyway, at the same time where he's trying to deal with that, Clark just uh, Clark Kent happens to remember that the government has launched a new communications satellite, so using his telescopic vision to check it out and see how it's doing, he sees the same meteor shower and switches to Superman. Cri- uh, swinging his arms like a bird, uh, he tries to create a, a wall of turbulence uh, which to keep the rocks away, while Green Lantern uses his ring to... uh, speed up some of the chucks so they will burn before they hit the ground. Unfortunately, their two plans, uh, not knowing what the other one is doing, uh, actually counteract against each other, and one of the meters is about to crash into a plane before Superman is able to fly into it real quick and bust it up instead of moving the plane. Um, Superman goes to check out what the heck happened and realizes it's Green Lantern. They start to bicker over the fact that they should have known what the other one was going to do, but suddenly their fight is broken up by one of the Guardians of the Universe, who says that he hates uh, the fact that they're fighting is not good, and uh, he suggests a contest, excuse me, he suggests a contest to um, decide who will be the winner and have domain over the boundaries of their atmosphere. So both of them agree to meet at um, the same place the next day. Uh, We don't see where Green Lantern goes although, at first anyway, but we do see Superman fly to his fortress, and he uh, alerts all law enforcement agencies not to expect help from either him or GL for the next few days, uh, which, and there is an editor's note here, which is, and apparently this is why the story had to be suppressed, because if they knew that Superman and Green Lantern were out of action, the criminal element would have had a field day, uh, although since it's few days, they would have had field, or field days, so I don't know. Meanwhile, uh, Green Lantern is hanging out with Green Arrow, and um, Green Arrow just kind of says, "You know, you need to make sure you're careful." And Green Lantern says he'll try, and he takes his ring and recharges it. And the next day, they head out to the contest, and suddenly they're greeted again by the Guardian, who, by the way, is—I um, didn't mention this earlier, just a minute ago—but basically, this is just his head. It's uh, like a an illusion just showing his head so he can communicate with them. Um, to bring in something someone who will keep the fight fair, the guardian brings the crop brings Dr. Fate, who should be of course on Earth 2, but he's come over to Earth 1 for reasons that are no concern to them and was enlisted by the guardian to help out. So, he creates using his magic he creates a purple dragon and puts it in a what appears to be a large golden ball type of thing, and creates two long tubes that head to it. Each of the heroes is to fly along the tube and where they will uh, meet what they fear most, and if they can overcome that, then they can get to their goal. So, taking off, um, and being told that since this is magic, both heroes will have a fair fight, they fly off. Uh first things first, we follow Green Lantern, who is suddenly ensnared in some kind of yellow cable that's also sticky. And it's barely, it's binding him pretty good and wrapping itself around him. When suddenly he's also... It turns out that these this cable is actually part of a giant yellow spider web, and he's about to be attacked by a giant yellow spider. And as anyone that follows the Silver and Bronze Age adventures of Green Lantern... And, of course, later on, uh, we, we know that the Green Lantern Rings have no effect on anything yellow. So, even though he can't control it, and he's not actually that scared in real life, his whole body is tensing up as if he is scared for some reason, probably a magic effect. And Hal realizes that his ring may not work, but there is something he can do, and he can use his muscle and his will to break free on his own. Because the man without the ring can still do some good, so he's able to bust free, and flies off. And fear figures out that since that's his one fear test, one fear test, it should be smooth sailing. Excuse me, and he wonders how Superman's doing, which of course is a transition to Superman. He flies along, and hears his name called out, Kal-El, which of course is his Kryptonian name, and uh, looks and sees a giant red boot, and looks up to see that it's a giant form of Jor-El, who tells him that he's very disappointed in him because he's not a scientist, and is using his powers to help people for glory and, and fame. And of course, Superman is all upset because it's his father not approving of him, and submits to a spanking. And, but during the spanking, he's realizing that his, this is how he's expected to feel, realizes that this is just an illusion conjured up by Dr. Fate's magic and is able to overcome this illusion and it fades out. So he flies off towards the, his prize at the end of the tunnel, realizing that, um, for all the, that he would trade all the glory and power of being Earth Superman for the existence of an ordinary citizen of Krypton. Which hopefully that that is up until he gets to the responsibility part because I would think that knowing Superman and reading about him as much as I have, if it came between you could live on Krypton as a normal person or you can stay here and you know keep the Earth safe, that he would you know keep the Earth safe. Anyway, both of them pretty much show up at the same time. Based on speed alone, Superman should win this battle. However, um, the dragon is covered in a uh, a purple aura. So Green Lantern uses his ring to dissolve it, hoping that'll do something to keep Superman back. But it causes the dragon to enlarge, which of course causes Superman to be startled and taken aback, which gives Green Lantern time to ensnare it in a cage. Unfortunately, uh, the dragon is able to claw through it thanks to Power or Doctor Fate's enchantments, and unfortunately, is also able to blast Superman with some kind of powerful bolts of magic, which knocks him out, and he refers to himself as being only as powerful as Don Knott's against magic, which is kind of funny, and uh, the dragon flies off, and they realize they need to go after it, uh, because it's headed straight for the Justice League satellite. Inside, Hawkman and the Atom are watching, and realize that something's coming up upon them, but there's really nothing that they could do, so outside, Superman and Green Lantern realize that they need to start working together instead of against each other. So what they decide to do is Green, Lan- uh, Green Lantern covers super- envelops Superman in his power ring, uh, yeah, power ring beam, and, which should protect Superman from the magic that hurt him before. And Superman flies off at super speed, and hoping that with, the, with his power covered with the Green Lantern energy, should allow him to actually have an effect on this dragon. So Superman flies up at the super speed. The dragon fire fires shots at him, but Green Lantern's energy is able to repel it, and Superman is able to give him one good superpower punch, which pretty much destroys the dragon. It literally explodes. And they start talking to each other, and Superman realizes that there's only one person who could have done this because obviously it couldn't be Dr. Fate. He wouldn't endanger the Justice League, and neither would the Guardians. So Superman comes to realize that it, there's an imposter, and he realizes it's got to be someone who is not only a JLA foe, but is also a magician. And there's only one person who can do that, and that is Dr. Faust. Um, disguising themselves as a green comet, they surprise and attack Faust. Uh, green Lantern uses his energy to dissolve Faust's disguise and engages him in a cube of green energy and takes him back to prison. And the heroes are left to wonder that uh, it would really be nice if you know all the vi- uh, all the people of earth knew that re- fight rivalry and jealousy brew nothing but trouble And that's it for this issue. Um, this was a pretty fun issue um, again the art was by Dick Dylan and Joe Gaella who are still not one of my favorites. I really don't have too much too many notes on this one though. Uh, page four, uh, when, green, when Superman realizes that it's Green Lantern, he says it figures. Now, by this point, I don't know about real time, but in superhero, in uh, comic book time, Hal Jordan's been the Green Lantern for about ten years now. He knows what he's doing, and he's never really had too much troubles before. I don't know why Superman would say it figures. And as both of them start going into their arguments, uh, Green Lantern is telling him that he sh- uh, Superman should have used his vision powers to see what he was doing. Um, Superman should have assumed that Green Lantern uh, that Superman would have had would have been there to handle the situation, which I just think both of them are expecting too much. They saw the problem, they handled it the way they thought it would work, and it just so happened that both of them were acting the same thing at the same time. It was an accident. I think it's just a little crazy the way they were acting there. Um, page 13, where we see Superman meet the giant version of Jor-El. <sighs> I don't see... It. Superman submits to a spanking and actually says, Spank me, Daddy. No. Uh, I don't, I don't, and it takes a page and a half... Uh, for him to realize that this is just an illusion, you're being confronted by a giant version of your father. He's been back to the past. He's been back to Krypton. He knows Jor-El is no giant. There's no way he should be a giant. But apparently that didn't clue him him in that this was an illusion. No, it was when he realized that he was being spanked by his fake father. Anyway, not a fan of that part. Uh, Page 18, I do find it weird that the, um, by this point JLA have been around for more than ten years. Also, I think, yeah, I think they debuted in '59, '60. So anyway, they've been around for about ten years, and they've fought all kinds of monsters in their history by this even by this point. But the Adam says that there's really nothing they can do but sit back and watch. I'm sorry, but I would think that Hawkman and uh, the Adam would have some way to do it. Plus, I also want to point out that this is probably one of the first times I've ever read that two heroes were on monitor duty at the same time. Maybe it just so happened to be as when they were switching, but usually it's one hero at a time on monitor duty, so having both of them there was kind of weird, but also makes sense since they actually shared a comic for a while. So maybe that's why they did that. I don't know. Um, overall, uh, I did notice a few instances of them saying chum, like the old Batman show. So that was weird. And it's also a good thing um, at the beginning that Superman and GL happened to start fighting with each other after the meteor attack. Instead of just saying, Oh, well you were helping. Sorry I got in your way. Yeah, me too. And, and flying off because otherwise this whole plan wouldn't have worked The Faust's plan. Um, it, his plan would not have been able to work because they weren't, you know, fighting. So, It kind of is one of those super comic book logics. But anyway, so that works out, and that's the end of that issue. So now I'm going to do some promos, and I'll be right back.
1: December 7th, Earth 2, 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy a world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The, the All-Star Star Squadron, Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America every Friday at 2
0: Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com
1: While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers, and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches
0: seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man.
1: Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, the Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Reilly should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man dot Lipson dot com life is a great big day wherever there's a hang up you'll find the Spider-Man
0: Man of steel and more superman homepage.com and we're back and um, our next comic that we're gonna that i'm gonna cover today is action comics number 398 um which has another cover by neil adams if you haven't noticed the theme yet uh it was released in march 1971 with a January 28, 1971 sale date. And the title of this one is, uh, well, actually, this is the only book this month with two stories to cover. And the first one is actually one of my favorites. Oh, before I forget, and I know I've already done the promos, but the, that last issue, The Prize of Peril from World's Finest, that story was reprinted in the Best of DC number 13, just so you know. Anyway, Action Comics 398. Uh, the first story is called The Pied Piper of Steel. It's one of the actually first stories, first Superman stories I ever read. Uh, the writer on this is Leo Dorfman. The art is by Kurt Swann and Murphy Anderson. The editor is Murray Boltenoff, because he was still editing Action at this point. And of course, Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. The cover is a pretty cool looking cover. We've got the normal Action Comics stuff, but we have Superman. Uh, busting up a building saying come on you catch the university is next and of course since it's the early 70s late 60s people were talking like that and behind him are a bunch of a bunch of people uh, jumping over a wrecked car there's fires going on behind them and wrecked buildings and you're wondering what the heck is going on here why Superman would be a part of it uh, so I thought it was a cool cover. Uh, moving on to the story, though. Like I said, this is the Pied Piper steal. Uh Now, this issue starts off in a way that seems like it should have been done like a couple issues ago. But, of course, they were starting that imaginary story, so they couldn't. Uh, but the beginning of the story uh, starts off, quote-unquote, one of the saddest days of Superman's career. As the GBS people are removing the Daily Planet globe and replacing it with a TV tower. And as they're doing this, the chain breaks, and Superman flies down to save it. Uh, First, he's got to save the workers, though, because for some reason the two workers have decided to stand on the globe, I guess, to attach it, and haven't had a chance to get off of it yet. And so Superman saves them, and then uses the antenna on top of the building, which I think was the one they were trying to put up there in the first place, I'm not sure. Anyway, rips rips it off the roof, throws it at super speed with... Just uh, the right kind of angle on it that it causes the globe to land in an empty lot. So, switching quickly back to Clark, uh, without, you know, moving the globe, he enters uh... Morgan Edge's office, who is his new boss, which they mentioned, and he walks in and Morgan Edge basically, this kind of, uh... in a quick two page, um, well, actually, not even that half of one page and half of the next page basically we get uh, somewhat of what happens in Superman 233 minus the actual big part of that story where Morgan Edge tells him that newspapers are outdated so they're changing things and moves Clark over to the to TV news and basically this is where he gives him the rolling newsroom which basically I don't know if they weren't commonplace back then, but these days you would see them as the news as a news van. Seems like anytime something's going on on the location, there's a bunch of news vans, and they've got these antennas and the cables and the cameras and equipment to broadcast back to the studio and everything like that. I don't know how common they were in 1971, but they make it sound like this one's either more special than the others, or perhaps it's uh, that it's still kind of a futuristic thing for 1971, but anyway, we have the mobile newsroom, and Morgan Edge points out that with all the stuff he can do in there between transmitting scoops, uh, telephoto lenses, remote pickups, microphones, and radar even for some reason, uh, there's enough equipment to make him a super reporter, which of course Clark says, naturally. And so Clark decides, you know what? He's going to need a big story to get off to really get the, off the ground on this television news kick. So, uh, as he's driving out in the news van, he sees a poster for a seaside folk rock festival, and it's featuring the dingalings, the Soda Pops, Porky, and the Hamlets, and the Astronauts. And he decides, you know what? Especially after Woodstock, these have been a, these rock festivals have been big things across the country. So he's going to cover them. So the next day at the festival site at Seaside, uh, Clark Kent does his first remote uh, story using the Rolling News van and interviews a guy named Cy Horkin, who's the producer of the rock of these rock fests across the country, and uh, mentioning that he was a professor at Central University j- until just a few uh, about three years ago when he left due to a quote-unquote faculty dispute, and he just says he's just trying to you know bring kids together. And uh, also tells Clark that he can't broadcast any of the music because he has already sold the rights to a record company. So Clark says that's fine. He'll just uh, do commentary from the inside of the soundproof truck. And soon the bash begins, and we get I don't know who these people are. I'm guessing that's the Dingalings. But uh, we've got this whole group of people. It's like uh, there's like nine people on stage all playing at the same time, all looking pretty groovy. And uh, soon the astronauts show up and start singing a song involving digging a rock. And all of a sudden, everyone outside starts digging using anything they can find. uh, The bleacher benches, everything. They're ripping it up and they're literally digging. And normally that wouldn't be too big of a deal, except that what they're doing is undermining the hotel, which is on top of the dune at the concert. So using a trapdoor that he at some point uh, installed between that day and the next day of uh, getting the van and now uh superman uh shows up out of quote unquote nowhere and uh literally picks up the hotel and moves it to somewhere safe and at that point the music has ended and everyone's like what's going on why were we taking?" so clark goes back to interview horkin and asks what would have happened or to try to find out what kind of weird effect that music had on his audience. Uh, Horkin has no idea. Guess the music just came on too strong. Call it rock power. <laughs> Not funny. So, um, then later on in Morgan Edge's office, it turns out that half the country watched um, Clark's broadcast and Superman's stunt, and decides that Kent is going to have to stay with those rock festivals. Because they are still sweeping the story by storm and bringing a lot of viewers to the newscast. So Clark heads out to, next week, he heads out to the Stone Mountain, uh, which is another one, also put on by Cy Horkin. And we see the concert begin again, uh, starting off with, I don't know who this first band is, but the next band is called The Bucketheads, who actually are guys literally wearing buckets on their heads, so I don't know how you hear their music but their song is called drink it up baby drink drink Drink." and while they're singing that everyone out in the audience starts drinking everything they can find now of course since this is a 1970s comic book they all using their thermoses or soda pop bottles you know no liquor or anything bad like that they're all drinking water and everything and just trying to get as much as they can now still, they start fighting over it because They're all super duper thirsty, so Superman switches again, or Clark switches to Superman again, and goes out the trap door, and uses uh, his power to dig out some underground steam, or digs down to some underground streams and releases geysers, which allows all the kids to, you know, drink as much as they want. Um, Then the music stops, and everyone's like, goes from being extremely thirsty to feeling like they've drank enough water to float the Queen Elizabeth Uh, after switching back to Clark he uh, he tries to interview Horkin again and that Horkin of course doesn't have a reason why this happened Clark just smiles at the camera and says uh, his fans flock to his festivals because the music just turns them on Uh, meanwhile but if Clark only knew what was happening inside a hidden cubicle backstage we see that Horkin has created um, something called an electronic brain which converts the lyrics of the song of any song to an irresistible command and he's, this is the second time he's tested it and unfortunately Superman's interfered both times but he, basically what he has done is used the electronic brain to cause the crowd to turn into lemmings and force them to commit quote-unquote the crime of the century back in his fortress of solitude um, Superman is listening to a recording that he Secretly taped for analysis, and his equipment apparently is faulty, which you don't usually see too much of. Superman's Fortress. So, using a small Kryptonian tape recorder given to him by the citizens of Kandor, which this is kind of cute because it's in a teeny little cabinet. This isn't. This didn't get enlarged when he left Kandor, apparently. But it's a teen. It looks like a teeny little uh. What they would have used in the 70s and. 60s and 50s for ta- uh, for tapes with the two spools and of course the tape runs between them but it's really small and inside this teeny little cabinet you see a bunch of those little reel-to-reel tapes in little canisters and all the equipment he would need all really small and miniaturized that's i think that's kind of cute and after taking one panel to bring everyone up to speed on the whole story of candor superman flies off days later clark covers the new festival which just happens to be at central university which is where of course Harkin was released from uh, inside we see the group Satan's Angels uh, as they start to sing a song called break it up tear it down wipe it out which causes the crowd to go nuts and they start destroying everything they can find between guitars and all the seats and everything that's there and they start messing with his van. so Clark switches to Superman again meanwhile we switch over to Harkin who is watching everything through binoculars and we find out that the reason he's causing this to happen is because of the fact that they wouldn't elect him president. So and he swore revenge, and he's going to revenge it. Uh, his revenge is that he's going to destroy the school. It seems a little overboard, but okay. And while they're doing that, Superman shows up, and suddenly gets this compulsion that he can't stop them. He's got to join them. And fortunately, he as he flies down, he destroys a. Building that's ready to be demolished for a new highway. So, you know, no problems there. And we, uh, of course, this makes Horkin happy because now Superman's helping too. Uh, fortunately, Superman is now leading the crowd, aka quote unquote like the Pied Piper of Steel, and is leading them towards the building where Horkin is. And Superman rushes in as they start tearing down the building. Superman also takes out that electronic brain from earlier, which causes all the kids to stop their destruction. And Superman asks Horkin to explain, or else. I don't know or else what, because it's Superman. He must have known he wouldn't really do anything to hurt him, but whatever. And he explains that he was trying to use the electronic brain to destroy the university. And Superman thinks to himself, well, as one of the kids say that Superman, Superbrain couldn't be controlled, Superman mentions to him that it Actually, he it wouldn't have been controlled normally, but because he was using that, that Kryptonian tape recorder, it amplified the music through uh, the Kryptonian electronics. And since he had an earphone in while he was flying around, that, of course, caused the music to actually have an effect. However, while he was flying through that, that building he was demolishing, one of the boards actually knocked the earphone out of his ear, and Superman was able to come to his senses when he led everyone to take, out, to take care of Horkin. And weeks later, we see that Horkin's in jail and is really hating the prison rock music that they're listening to. And that's the end of that little story. And like uh, the reason I said that this was one of my first stories is uh, this story has been reprinted a couple times. Uh, both times were in, um, the first time was Superman 30s to the 70s. And the second time was Superman 30s to the 80s. And as I mentioned before, one of my first, the first books I ever read involving Superman was 30s to the 80s. And this, actually, I remember this story because it, it was, they reprinted the first part of it actually in color before moving on to the black and white pages. And um, this one stuck out with me because I couldn't believe that before I was even born, something everyone knows so well as The Daily Planet was being pretty much taken away, um, and which is just so weird because was I knew it was 1970 or 71, the early 70s, and, but I also knew that the big thing about Superman was that Clark Kent worked for The Daily Planet based on what I'd seen from the Superman TV show and the movies by that point. So the, fa- the fact that it was being taken away in the early 70s seemed confusing to me. And it wasn't until years later that one, not only did I finally read the rest, start remembering the rest of the story, but that it finally started making sense. And anyway, I do have some notes for this issue. Uh, Page one, again, they're removing the Daily Planet globe. And really, that's not going to come back for about 10 years. So that actually stays gone. It's one of the things that does happen uh, during Maury Boltonov's reign on action that sticks. We won't see the Daily Planet Globe again until about 1980 or 81 when they finally put it back. Um, And I believe that's also in another issue of Action Comics. Uh, So, see how that works out. Uh, Pages 2 and 3, like I said, this is an alternate version of Edge moving Clark from print to TV. And the rolling newsroom seems like modern news vans. Page 5, now, I wrote this note and thinking that he just went straight to the festival, but there is a day between Clark leaving in the news van uh, uh, leaving the GBS building in the news van and going to that first festival, so that would have given him plenty of time to put in a trapdoor. It's just lucky he, did, he thought to do so, you know, that first day. Uh, page six, of course, this is, again, superhero comic book physics. One, um, Superman is able to lift the whole, the whole hotel without it falling apart. And also, apparently, there's no plumbing or problems with the foundation or wiring or anything because he just lifts it up cleanly without, you know, causing pipes to burst and electric lines to be all over the place and phone lines. So, yay. Um, page seven, again, those buckethead guys. Uh, not only are they guys wearing buckets, but they all look really redneck, too. And no offense to anyone that might actually be a redneck, but... what? Uh, couple of them are wearing overalls, a couple are wearing plaid, they're playing like uh, an upside down uh, basin uh, one's playing one of those uh, I don't even know what those are called but they, they dry the clothes on or wash the clothes on them, the washboard that's what they're called, With one of those washing boards one's playing a banjo and one's got a kind of guitar so they you know—they look really country and redneck but again uh, Kurt Swan does do a good job of you know keeping the themes of all these bands separate Although that might have been a Dorfman thing, but still. Uh, page 10, um, like I said, I think it's weird that Superman has defective equipment in his fortress. You never see that. Usually his equipment is tip-top shape and everything's fine, but this time it's defective. Um, also on page 10, like I said, since it comes from Candor, everything is really small. And then in one panel, basically Superman explains... Where, where the Kandor was a city on Krypton. Brainiac shrank it. He saved it from Brainiac and has devoted his life to try to figure out how to re-enlarge the city and its people so that they can live out their lives at normal size. However, because things keep getting in the way, such as you know being Clark Kent um, and you know saving Earth on a daily basis, he hasn't had been able to put tor- forth as much time as he's wanted, and he has yet to find a way to save them. Yeah, but he does that all in one panel, which is pretty cool, while standing there looking at the bottle. So if you haven't been reading any Superman comics up until then, now you know the whole story. And on page 12, uh, it's fortunate uh, that Superman destroyed uh, a, demo- a building set to be demolished anyway, considering he was actually under the quote-unquote influence. And really, probably, that must, maybe he played his mind still played a part in that, but... It's just very fitting that he didn't end up destroying part of the college. Uh, overall, um, for this story, um, I did note that the, the Clark wears the same outfit each week. He's wearing the exact same uh, suit tie combo, which again looks like uh, his classic suit, but this time recolored. And this time he's wearing a blue shirt, or no, he's not. He's wearing a yellow shirt, and the rest of the suit's purple which I guess looks good in a comic. I wouldn't want to see it in real life. Uh, But he, maybe it's just a coincidence, but he, again, wears it every time. So, um, again, I like the outfits worn by the band. They all make sense. uh, Satan's Angels was because you can't say Hell's Angels, and they are a motorcycle band. Uh, They all have their hot helmets and everything. Uh, The astronauts are are dressed like astronauts. The bucket heads have buckets on their heads. Uh, I still don't know how you'd hear them singing without it (laughs) sounding but anyway and um, also um, Horger created this electronic brain why would he worry so much about revenge against against the school if he's someone smart enough to make that electronic brain Wouldn't wouldn't that mean that he could get a job pretty much anywhere on the United States and make a ton more money than being a professor at a college and the fact that he's going so far because they wouldn't elect him president, so he's going to destroy the place. Mm. No. But on the other hand, I like the way Swan and Anderson really draw Horker. Uh, They show him looking... They've got a lot of character that they draw in on his face that you just don't see on many of the other characters. Even Superman himself. He just looks really cool. He's got wrinkles. Uh, You can tell that he looks really pissed off sometimes. He clenches his lips some of the times. Uh, It just looks really cool. However, the one problem I did have was that the whole title of the story is called The Pied Piper of Steel, which literally only takes place for one scene on two pages, maybe three. On the plus side, they—I think he is called the Pied Piper of Steel, which is something my wife likes to hear when um, they do that because they brought the title into the sh- story, so that's pretty cool. And again, like I said, this has been reprinted twice. The second story is another one of those untold tales of the fortress, even though most of the story doesn't take place there. Uh, the title of this one is called Spawn of the Unknown, uh, which is written by Jeff Brown, who we know as is also Leo Dorfman using an assumed name. Uh, the art was by Swan and Anderson, and of course the editor was Mori Boltonoff, and Jerry Siegel and Joe Suster were, of course, the creators of Superman. Uh, so out of the middle of nowhere, which apparently we find out is African jungle, or at least it's a jungle, uh, Superman shows up to meet uh, gamekeeper Itru, uh, who sent out a radio message to Superman about the fact uh, that there's some kind of plague which has turned some beasts into plants, and as Superman's landing, we do see this tree that looks like it was a le- used to be a leopard. It's even got the spots, and another tree that's actually green and looks like it used to be an alligator or a crocodile. Iteru explains that what happened was he was working with a famous botanist, Professor Bruno, who was trying to create synthetic seeds to develop and grow fantastic vegetation. During one of his experiments, he actually showed it off by painting a post inside a tent. Which suddenly could sprout leaves, and Itaru was driving on patrol or something. Doesn't really say, but he's away from where the where the experiments were taking place. When a volcanic crater exploded, uh, where Bruno camped, there was no earthquake, and the volcano can't be erupting, so he thinks one of the experiments exploded accidentally. So he goes out to investigate, and he finds out that there are seeds thrown all over the place, and that apparently it has transmuted some beasts into plants. Superman takes off, to, and mentioning that his environmental body should be immune to the effects, but he says, no, you're wrong, take a look behind that tall lava rock. Superman flies over and sees a tree that looks just like Supergirl in her really ugly early 70s costume. Superman tries to speak to her because suddenly uh, this has become a big deal, even though it wasn't as as big a deal a minute ago. Uh, But of course, she's a tree, so she can't speak. Uh, Suddenly, over Itaru's radio, uh, Superman gets a call from Interpol about uh, ancient tombs uh, being raided at the Valley of Pharaohs. So Superman says that he's not um, deserting them. Egypt's only a few miles, a few thousand miles away, and he'll be right back. The robbers are taking everything they can out of the tomb when suddenly they come again again, up against Anubis, the ancient god guardian of the dead, and his stone eyes start glowing, and suddenly his he starts talking to them and says that he must, they must leave the place or tell them what the fate will. be. Await them, and suddenly they can see through their clothes and their skin to see the skeletons underneath. And of course, this scares them, and they run off. Superman then flexes his muscles and busts his costume, which, and we learned that Superman was in the was in the end of his costume, and he used his X-ray vision to do that whole vision trick. Which I have a note on this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now. X-ray vision doesn't work that way. The only person that can see X-ray vision is Superman. Well, Supergirl, but she can't see Superman's X-ray vision. She has to use her own. So no way his X-ray vision could actually allow those guys to see through their own bodies. But that's the way it works. Anyway, Superman has let those guys go because while he could have arrested them, uh, those superstitious louts, or (laughs) that's what he calls them anyway, those quote-unquote superstitious louts, uh, no robbers will dare approach these tombs again because they'll spread the word about what happened to them. He streaks back to Africa, and um, Ituru, of course, says that he needs to do something to help him. And the uh, the Supergirl tree has become even more gnarled than before. So Superman's going to try to rip loose her roots and take her back to the fortress, which seems kind of dumb if she's actually a tree, wouldn't that hurt? Um, But the limbs of the tree start hugging Superman. And he starts apparently freaking a little bit and mo- uh, s- opens his arms, which causes the arms of the tree to break off. And Superman thinks he's hurt Supergirl terribly, and, but, but out of nowhere, Supergirl flies down. And he's like, but, and of course this confuses Superman. She explains how what happened was these synthetic seeds um, are, were scattered all over the place. And it turns out that the plants don't mutate the actual person or the actual creature, but create a plant that uh, copies the nearest life form, like a protective camouflage. And of course, even though he's got all the proof in front of him that he needs to believe Supergirl's what Supergirl's saying, he says that this is a ridiculous theory and there's no way that it could be right. But Supergirl has him turned around, and we see a Superman tree, which obviously means that. Superman hasn't been turned into a tree and proves her theory anyway. So they realize that they will have to decontaminate the area and they need to do something with those plants. But since it's against their code to kill, uh, Superman and Supergirl uh, basically lift away the giant crater and the entire infected area and take it to a remote world where they can flourish harmlessly and back in the, con- in the fortress of solitude we see the two super people trees and they make a comment about it kind of looks like a freaky Venus de Milo and Superman says who cares as long as the real Supergirl is alive and well and with me here in my fortress the art first of all is really good I do like the art on here Uh, again Swan and Anderson are a great art team and I think they do some really good art on this story on page two Basically, it it occurs to me that what uh, this professor is doing is basically doing what Poison Ivy has actually been doing in Gotham for years. She showed up in Gotham, I'm not sure of the exact first issue because this is not a Batman podcast, but she showed up during the Silver Age, I believe, for the first time, and controlled control plants. And has been doing that since she showed up during the 60s, and now this guy has amazingly figured out how to do the same thing. Uh, again, page five is where the x-ray vision thing really comes into effect, which, of course, we know doesn't work. Apparently, Leo Dorfman has an idea of Superman's powers, but not how they work all that well, and neither does Murray Boltonoff, because pre- a, a previous issue we saw how his super hearing was blocked by lead, which we know doesn't work, and now his x-ray vision works funky, which we know also doesn't work. Um, anyway, page six, not only does Superman try to rip the supergirl tree out of the ground breaking the roots which you would think would be a bad thing to do to someone that's been turned into a tree because that's probably part of them but then pretty much rips her arms off so poor supergirl meanwhile when supergirl when superman starts asking all these questions about how supergirl ha- is actually still alive and is not a tree uh, supergirl just starts off with cool it and I'll tell you instead of just saying well actually superman this is what happened um and this is just goes to show that goes along with some of the stuff that I've noticed. Uh, during the early seventies, I'm not sure if it's an effect because of what Marvel was doing or what, but the heroes of the DC universe don't seem to be very nice to each other during this period. Uh Green Arrow and Green Lantern work together, but Green Arrow's always giving him a bunch of crap about the you know, about the government and the man and all that stuff. Um Batman keeps referring to Robin as kid all the time and earlier we saw we saw a world's finest issue where superman and green lantern were you know arguing with each other and now we've got supergirl telling superman to cool it i don't know that's it's just not nice and again like i just said like i just said a little bit ago uh, superman calls her the- uh, her theory about what is happening a ridiculous theory even though the evidence is right there and you would think that with it being his cousin who Quote, unquote, he feels is like a sister to her. He'd be a little more, you know, oh, that makes sense. Maybe you're right. On page eight, which is the final page of the story, we do see Superman and Supergirl take the crater of life and synthetic seeds out to a remote planet. Two things I had a problem with this one panel. Uh, one, in the vacuum of space, you would think all those plants would die anyway. And number two, uh, any of the seeds that hadn't sprouted we are basically just kind of sitting on the ground so i would think that in space they'd kind of just you know, float away i don't know i've never been in space i don't know all the specifics about it but i do know there's not much gravity and there is no atmosphere now they've put them on a planet with an atmosphere although it doesn't look like it in the image uh... but there might be some cloudiness showing from what i can tell um, It looks like there's some stuff over on the when you get to the horizon lines even though they can still totally see space and other planets out in the out and about, um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how that works. But again, those seats would have probably just floated away once they hit space, no matter how fast they're flying. Although maybe if they're flying fast enough, the force of the I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Anyway, and that brings us to the conclusion of all of our March 1971 comics from the Bronze Age. Um, so I guess next we will do our Meanwhile, in the DC multiverse, using uh, the cover gallery at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com, looking at all the books that were on sale in the month of January 1971, uh, we see Aquaman number 56, which involves a story called The Creature That Devoured Detroit, and we see now, I'm looking at the cover, and it looks like we see a, some kind of weird creature coming up out of the water. And However, we, the camera angle is up in the sky, apparently over the city of Detroit, so I'm guessing that's like Michigan. And Aquaman's flying towards the creature. I have not known Aquaman to be a flyer, but in any event, uh, this was a story uh, written by Steve Skeets and done by Jim Aparo. So, it, you know it looked good. And um, so that looks actually like a pretty interesting story. Uh, DC Special number 11 uh, presents Beware. The monsters are, it says coming, but the word coming is crossed out and says here, which appears to be a large reprint issue for only 25 cents. And it um, features another Neil Adams cover. That Aquaman issue, by the way, had a Nick Cardy cover. Um, Our Army at War, number 230, featuring Sergeant Rock. Um, We've got uh, Sergeant Rock and his troops uh, looking for some large tracks that could be a demon. As Sergeant Rock says, that's baloney. Uh, One of the guys is looking at a shadow that is covering them, which appears to be a demon. So that looks pretty interesting. Uh, Tomahawk, number 133, which is actually son of Tomahawk. that's what it says. And um, and of course, apparently the only good engine is a dead engine, uh, as Hawk faces the Scalp Hunter. And I'm not sure. I guess, Oh, that's right. The son of Tomahawk is a white man, I guess, even though this other guy looks like he's trying to kill him. I'm not sure. Uh, Wonder Woman number 193. Uh, Wonder Woman has apparently stopped uh, a bad guy and is trying to tell a gentleman named Tony to let the law handle him but uh, this guy has a gun pointed at both both of them and is basically one of those situations where the guy believes that the law isn't going to work and that the only kind of law for a rat like the bad guy that has been knocked out is to shoot him Uh, and all it says on the cover is Angela. So that's pretty curious. Uh, We do have Secret Hearts number 150, involving a story entitled Love Could Wait. Although, the cover shows a woman in a Giordano cover, running away from her, I guess, her man, and says to stay away after what you just, after what you did, I just want to die. So, who knows what this is? This could be cheating, this could be beating. I'm not sure. Uh, But, this does say that um your love problems will be answered in this issue, so you might want to check that out I don't know uh we do get superboy number one seventy two uh where Superboy is at the world of the super ape and is having to fight a whole bunch of is apparently it looks the look on superboy's face it appears that he's had to fight one super ape and finally defeated him, but now is surrounded by five more and has a look of shock and, s- and looks pretty scared on this, and this is another Neil Adams cover, and it looks really good. Plus, there's a new Legion of Superheroes story in there. Uh, meanwhile, over at Adventures Comics number 403, looks like we get a whole bunch of reprints involving Legionnaire stories, and also uh, there's an extra involving new Legion costumes designed by the readers and a diagram of the Legion's headquarters. But... Uh, I also want to point out, for anyone that's read the Lightning Saga, uh, done a few years ago in the, for the Justice League-Justice Society crossover, um, this cover shows uh, Lightning Lad uh, in a case, apparently dead, and Superboy, Saturn Girl, Chameleon Boy, Lightning Lass, Sun Boy, and Mon-El, all holding up those little lightning rods, and there's a Lightning Storm above them, so it's very reminiscent of that story and we have girl romances number 155 which actually has a pretty cool looking cover by gray morrow it deals with some kind of jealousy and apparently there's three stories in there for only 15 cents and they're true to life girl romances so you can't go wrong with that uh superman's pal jimmy olsen number 136 uh jimmy olsen the dn alien and if you want to know more about that story Please go over to supermanhomepage.com, check out the pre-crisis reviews, and you'll see where I have actually reviewed that issue. And I need to finish up. I've only got one more issue left of Jimmy Olsen where uh, Jack Kirby was working on it. I really want to get that finished up, and I feel bad, and I apologize to Steve Eunice, if you're listening to this, but I haven't finished that yet. I will get to that shortly. Uh, We have The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, number 123, which means that he's still going strong, and let me check this and judging by the fact that there's another one yes this is still not the last issue there is one more so he hasn't gone away yet although this one has an April cover date so that's a little weird but it came out in January so next up we have House of Mystery number 121 Uh, another story drawn another cover by Neil Adams and this features a cover where it looks like a gentleman is being killed Or at least very badly attacked by a whole bunch of puppets, while three children look on in horror, while trying to hide. However, one of the puppets has just turned around and spotted them and looks pretty mad. So that looks cool. Mister Miracle number one came out this month, also with a April cover date. But of course, this is a Jack Kirby uh, another one of the Jack Kirby books, and this has one of the that classic. Mr. Miracle cover where basically it looks like he's tied up in a whole bunch of bolts and things but attached to a rocket while three guys are on a tower saying goodbye, you've lost your wager and your life. But of course we know that he's a super escape artist so obviously he's going to get out and this is the making of a legend and it's called the Murder Missile Trap and I recommend you read that because that's a pretty good issue. Jack Kirby was really doing good for DC at this time um, we have our fighting forces number 130 featuring the losers and this is another Joe Kubert cover cuz that's what he does and we have the losers looks like they're hiding out on top of a building saying that they're safe and the Nazis will never find them there as we see a Nazi plane flying overhead dropping bombs towards them so that's pretty exciting uh, we have strange adventures number 229 I don't know if any of these are reprints Uh, one of the stories is uh, Adam Strange story which is a reprint Uh, This story involves the last mile of space that's another one of those 25-cent books we have super DC giant s23 which is uh, Tales of the Unexpected well it just says have you the nerve to face the unexpected and it's 64 pages of reprints it looks like and uh, again it's 25 cents So that's pretty cool. We have the Superman issue. Uh, Young Love, number 85. These romance books are getting a little crazy. And this one, I don't have a note about who does the cover. Although this, again, looks like a Grey Morrow cover. Moving on, we have uh, Batman, number 230, uh, with Robin the Boy Wonder. And it's another Neil Adams cover. And we see uh, this this cover has Batman, really huge, uh, standing over the city with his cape. Um, kind of furled about him as below him we see a bunch of bikers riding their bikes. They're all black men. It's all apparently one gang. And that could mean nothing but trouble, I guess. Uh, we get Flash number 204, where on the cover, Iris Allen is revealing that the Flash is, in fact, Barry Allen uh, to all these people on a very nice looking Neil Adams cover. Um, we see that there's going to be a new kid flash story in there and we also see at the bottom uh, that this issue not only involves the Flash but it's called the Great Secret Identity Exposé and it guest stars Superman, Batman, Black Canary, Green Lantern and Hawkman. So that looks really cool. We have Phantom Stranger number 12 and it's another Neil Adams cover and Basically, I don't know what's going on in the cover, but we see a gentleman in the kind of bed that you might see on stories featuring Ebenezer Scrooge, the old style type of bed with a canopy over it and the curtains all over on the side so no light gets in. Um, And he's he's looking scared as the phantom stranger is floating over the bed carrying the body of a dead woman. And I'm going to tell you, even though this says Neil Adams, this looks a lot like Jim Aparo. I mean, it still could be because I know Aparo. Got a lot of um, influence from Neil Adams, and it doesn't seem to have the Aparo signature on it, but it looks very much like an Aparo cover. So that looks really cool. Teen Titans number 32 with a Nick Cardi cover. Features a world gone mad. We have The Three Mouseketeers, which is another one of those cartoon books, which apparently involves uh, some mice trying to go fish uh, the three musketeers, I guess, uh, trying to go, trying to fish in a fish tank. One of the mice has fallen in, and the fish looks pretty mad at him while the other two sit there with their hands covering their mouth, like, uh oh. And this is another 64 page reprint book, so it's 25 pages. Uh, in addition to the three musketeers, which appear in every other story in this book, we also have Bo Bunny, Doodle Stuck, Daisy Dog. Dodo and the Frog, and Dizzy Dog. Um, Then, of course, we have Date with Debbie, number 14. Uh, And not only do we get to meet a little guy who's a big man named Jack Wilde, but it's another 64 pages, and this one's all new for 25 cents. And uh, this looks very much like an Archie book. And let's see. Next up, we have Justice League of America, number 88, um, which is called The Last Survivors of Earth. And according to the cover, while the side part only shows that the roll call is Superman, Batman, Flash, Black Canary, Green Lantern, and Green Arrow, on the cover we also see Aquaman, Mira, Flash, and Hawkman, and the Atom. And we also see what appears to be, uh, we see all the heroes walking towards us with their heads down, looking sad. Um... Well, in the background, it looks like Clark Kent is giving a news report stating uh, "And where the Superpower Justice League failed, these three ordinary people saved the Earth, and behind them we see one guy looking like a sheik, one guy looking like Prince Adam, and one guy looking uh, from He-Man, and one woman looking like a little old lady with with something in her hand. Uh, Again, that's a Neil Adams cover. It looks really cool. Uh Supergirls in adventure comics number four o four the new issue that is not all reprints, and um we get something called super with a question mark as we on the cover we show we see Supergirl looks like she's being wrestled down painfully by some woman with a patch and by the way, I was looking through some of these old adventure comics issues, and the first issue to be edited by Mike Zakowski um involves supergirl uh touching. A gentleman, a unconscious gentleman's head, and reading his thoughts. Now, I have never seen Supergirl do have this superpower before. If anyone out there knows more about this, if this was just something that Sikowski thought she was able to do, or something. If you could please write in and let me know, I would be really interested to find out about it because I looked at the issue before it and she doesn't do anything and she doesn't show this power. I look at this issue and she uses it like there's, uh, like it's something she's always had. So if anyone has any more information about that, I would be really pleased if you would please email me at UMBC81. Sorry, UMBC81 at gmail.com. and then, of course, the final issue for the month is Detective Comics with Batman and Batgirl. And while the cover doesn't sh- uh, doesn't feature anything about the Batgirl story, the cover does show Batman uh, facing a guy that looks like he's pretty cut up and has a sword, and he's holding the face mask as if he's been in a costume. And Superman or Superman Batman looks pretty shocked. And from the back, this guy does not look like someone you're going to want to see the fe- face of. So. That's all that happened in January of 71. Again, uh, like I mentioned, uh, if you would like to be a guest host on the show at any time, uh, please just email me and we'll see what we can set up for you. Um, I would love to have any and all people that would like to be on the show. I do have a few that I'm wanting to set up uh, on my own that I have some special stuff coming, uh, but that's way down the road. Nothing really uh, nothing really in the next few uh, months, at least not, this year, I don't believe. So if anyone has any issues coming up or you would just like to be on the show or you would like to, you know, cover an issue of this era of the Superman books or you have an issue of World's Finest you like or action or you like the Sandman story and you want to come in and offer your two cents, please uh, just let me know and we'll get you on the show. And again, uh, make sure you check out the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressability.com slash superman podcast network and uh, I'll see you next time thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age hosted by Charlie Niemeyer you can write to the show at UMBC 81 at gmail.com you can subscribe to the show two ways via the RSS feed at superman in the Bronze Age or via iTunes also if you like this show make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.